0: All right, today's reading is from uh, verses in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. In the spring, when kings marched out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They, de- they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported... This is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had had bought. He raised it and it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die because he has done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anoint you king over Israel, and I deliver you from the hands of Saul. Delivered you from the hands of Saul. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Would you remain standing? We're going to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. If we haven't met already, my name is Al. I've been on vacation for a few weeks, and I get to come back to talk about David and Bathsheba. So, it should be easy. The thunder's already arriving. Thank you, Jesus, that you're here with us, Lord. Thank you, Father, that your word is true. Jesus, you tell us that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. We have a little bit of a sound issue, uh, we'll continue to work that out. I also think that, I can't really see your faces today, but I'm just, let's just go with it. Um, there's a scene in the fourth book of Harry Potter, where Harry is placed under what's called the Imperious Curse, by a villain who's taken over the body of his teacher, his instructor, the Imperious Curse is one of the most powerful curses. It's one of three curses that are unforgivable used by the dark arts to control its victim. It's an unforgivable curse. And the moment that the villain, Barty Crouch Jr. shouts imperio in front of all of Harry's classmates to place Harry under this curse, Harry instantly feels a change in his physical state. Can you guys hear that? Can you hear the buzz? Or is it just me? Want to make sure I'm not just going out of my mind right now, which is very likely, actually. So the moment that the villain Barty Crouch Jr. shouts imperio in front of all of Harry's classmates to place Harry under this curse, Harry instantly feels a change in his body. And he can feel himself being overtaken, but somehow Harry seems to overcome the curse because the very next paragraph says, and then Harry heard Crouch's voice, echoing in some distant chamber of his empty brain saying, jump onto the desk, jump onto the desk. So Harry bent his knees obediently, preparing to spring, jump onto the desk, why? Another voice had awoken in the back of his brain. That's a stupid thing to do, really said the voice. Jump onto the desk? No, I don't think so. I don't think I will, said the other voice, a little more firmly. No, I don't really want, I don't really wanna do that. How is Harry able to resist this curse? I'll Share that in a moment. Because although Harry was able to resist that curse, the rest of us have not been so fortunate. According to the Bible, all of creation is under a curse. It's called sin. And it's not a popular word in our culture. In fact, back in the 70s, uh, a doctor, a psychologist by the name of Carl Menninger, a well-respected physiologist, psychologist, he wrote a book called, Whatever Became of Sin. Minninger was a professor at Harvard Medical School. And in the book, Whatever Became of Sin, who's not a Christian, Dr. Meninger, as far as I know. He says, sin has practically disappeared from our vocabulary, and yet the sense of guilt remains in our hearts and minds. He essentially says, so long as people live under the shadow of real, unacknowledged, and unexpiated guilt, they will continue to hate themselves. But the moment they begin to accept their guilt and sinfulness, the possibility of radical reformation opens up. This is the product and the result of tons of study and research that he had done and case studies. In other words, sin not only gives you and I a clue to all that's wrong in the world, but it also gives us a clue to what's wrong inside of us. It's what keeps me from loving God with all of my heart, experiencing shalom, peace and loving my neighbor as myself or even really loving myself if we're to truly be set free we need the biblical doctrine of sin that's true of us and it's true of David because in 2nd Samuel chapter 11 through 12 we take a deep dive a turn in the life of David it's the infamous story of David and Bathsheba And from this story, I want to point out four reasons why we need sin. Four reasons why we need the doctrine of sin. First, we need the doctrine of sin to know what we're really facing. When I was 18 years old, I had a terrible stomach ache. At first, it just felt like a bad stomach bug, and I drank some Pepto-Bismol and maybe some Jack Daniels to try to alleviate the pain. But the next day I was lying on the floor in utter agony. I called my dad, I asked him if he could come over, pick me up, take me to the hospital. He took me there, it turned out I had a ruptured appendix. The doctor said if I had just continued with the kind of alleviation I was going through, just some Pepto and some Jack Daniels, I would have been dead in a matter of hours. Point is, sometimes when you apply Neosporin to a gunshot wound, it's not enough. You have to know what you're really facing. That's ultimately what David learns in chapter 12 when his pastor by the name of Nathan comes to visit him and confront him for his adultery with a married woman named Bathsheba. And then his murder of her husband to cover up her pregnancy, it creates this whole scandal. A year has passed from the point of David's secret to now the visitation of his pastor. And David's experience in that year of secrecy is recorded in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And in those journal entries, David graphically talks about how his secret sin affected his body, affected his physiological state, affected his relationships with others, with God, and with himself. He's drowning in shame. He feels like God is crushing his bones, it says in the Psalms. The weight of his guilt is breaking him, which the Holy Spirit's kindness is allowing. Because the New Testament says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. When Nathan, this prophet, comes to David, he tells him a simple story about a rich man with large flocks of sheep who needed a lamb for dinner that he was giving to his friends. And instead of taking a lamb from his own ample flocks, This rich man cruelly and arrogantly takes the pet lamb of the poor man living down the street. He kills the lamb and serves it up to his rich friends. David is drawn into the story just like a good religious man would be. He's outraged at the cruelty of this culture. Religious people are particularly good at getting angry at the sin of others while failing to look in the mirror at their own selves. This is a case study in self-deception. David is unsuspectedly taking up his role as a righteous judge and pronounces a death sentence on, the, on the, the rich man. Eugene Peterson in his commentary says, pitying and judging are religious sentiments that can be indulged endlessly, making us feel vastly superior to everyone around us but not making a particle of difference in our lives. And that's what when Nathan pronounces to David, David, you're the man. It's you. In that moment, David stares at his own sin in the face. He sees what he's really facing. This is a bullet hole. This is an appendectomy. This is not a stomach pain. He sees what he's really facing and he sees that he, it was him who chose to sleep with this woman, this married woman named Bathsheba. He sees he's really facing now what it is, it's sin. God calls it wickedness. Verse 26 says that David takes Bathsheba to be his wife after that. After his scandal, he actually waits the proper amount of time for her to be ceremonial, ceremonially grieving. According to the Jewish law, He's doing all the religious ritual things, but in verse 27 it says, she became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. We don't use that word much anymore, do we? We don't consider that there's things that God considers in this world or in our behaviors as evil. David is trying to make good by going through the religious ritual. He lets her complete her ceremonial law of mourning. Even though David tries to do the right thing, even the religious thing, he doesn't get real relief until he actually confesses and repents of his actions. This is sin. It's not a stomach bug, it's a full blown ruptured soul and a ruptured relationship with God. And that's when he repents. When Nathan does come to him a year later, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned. What is sin? We'll say more about that in a moment. But David's confession is the beginning of release from the control of the curse. Will he actually repent? Will he turn away from his sin? That remains to be seen. But for now, the first time, David sees what he's really facing. He didn't see it in the beginning. I think in verse one, it actually shows us that the curse was working before David's fall with Bathsheba had even started. He didn't know that what he was facing from the very beginning was temptation. It says in verse one, it was in the springtime, at the time that kings go off to war, that David sent his men and the whole Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They had victory, but notice this sentence. But David remained in Jerusalem, and that's when it all started. The ancient desert fathers and mothers called it the sin of asidia or uh, spiritual apathy. They called it being visited by the noonday demon, that moment where you've had spiritual victory, you've had some success in life, and now you just, you don't really know what to do next with your energy. You're a little bit unfulfilled spiritually, and you just think, I think I'll just go surfing and browsing Bathsheba's Facebook account." I have a preacher friend who says, after I preach, I typically want to do something bad. Resistance to temptation can be depleting, and that's when it says Jesus, when he resisted Satan's three temptations in the desert, angels came and ministered to him, and Satan departed from him to come back at a more opportune time. David has abandoned his purpose. He's forgotten as a king, he's meant to fight, he's forgotten that the spiritual life is one of contested space, it's an ongoing battle, and he's forgotten, and now he's coming face to face with what he really sees. That's one reason we need sin. The second reason we need the doctrine of sin is not just to know what we're really facing, it's for human flourishing. Now that might seem like a paradox, but I want you to think about this for a moment. In our modern age, what's the one unforgivable sin? It's denying your desires. That's the unforgivable sin in our modern culture. Like Elsa, our culture preaches the message, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Let it go. If it makes me happy, I'm not harming anyone. The problem is when my desires compete with your desires. In this story, the problem for most moderns is not that David fulfills his desire, the problem is that David fulfills two desires. One is culturally acceptable, the other is not. So if the only unforgivable sin is denying my desires, then who's to say that one desire is right and another is wrong? See, on the one hand, David does fulfill his sexual desire, which is culturally acceptable, even admirable. He sees a beautiful naked woman bathing outside of his window. Some commentators dispute whether the fact that she was actually seducing him or not. I don't know. It doesn't say explicitly. What I do know is David acts on it, and it's acceptable. The other desire David fulfills is culturally reprehensible. David works hard to get the husband To come home sleep with his wife so that he can pin the pregnancy on Uriah that little phrase that says that she was past her ceremonial cleansing means that she's probably wasn't pregnant she was on her cycle while her husband was away to war so this is clearly David's baby and he calls Uriah to come home he sends a message and says bring him back Uriah, go home, enjoy time with your wife. But Uriah, unfortunately, is more loyal to his country and to the army, and he doesn't go home. He says, how can I go home and enjoy a nice warm bed and time with my beautiful wife when my friends and my army is out there on the battlefield? He's a man of valor, a man of principle. So David's left with one option. Have him killed by having the commander leave Uriah left vulnerable on the front lines of the battle, and when he's left there, have the rest of the army retreat. So Uriah is killed. What if that desire in this culture is noble? What if it's noble in certain cultures to just do away with the person that is the problem in your life? What if free sex is reprehensible in some cultures? Without the doctrine of sin, who is to say that one desire is acceptable and the other is reprehensible. Whether adultery, abuse, power, murder, you say, well, if it harms the community, then it's wrong. But what if I believe in population control? What if I value a a state or a country that has less people and more enjoyable product? Who are you to tell me that my desires are wrong? How do you know your desires are right? That's the dilemma our culture is in right now. We have no ethical frame of reference related to politics, technology, healthcare, genetic engineering, war, etc. We need sin to say abuse of power is wicked. Ignoring the poor and vulnerable is wicked. Forcing someone into a sexual encounter without their consent is wicked. Sleeping with someone you're not committed to in the covenant of marriage, according to Scripture, is wicked. Murder and unjust violence is wicked. Breaking your covenant is wicked. We need the doctrine of sin to tell us what is wicked and leads to the unraveling of community and what leads to human flourishing. Without this such doctrine, we're left to our own devices. We're left to opinion. And who's to tell me that my desires are lesser than yours? What if I believe in murder? We need the doctrine of sin. Thirdly, we need the doctrine of sin to know the basic formula for the curse or for temptation. We need sin to know how to fight temptation. How to fight the curse as Harry Potter did. Because David's fall follows the same basic pattern that's outlined in the Bible for how temptation works. For some of my more mathematical friends, I wish I could have put this in an equation for you. I just am terrible at math. The faces of our temptation might look different, but the formula is essentially the same. Look at the story again. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was super fine. And David sent someone to inquire about her. The man said, hey, man, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elian, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Skip to verse 14. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Now, I want you to notice or circle a few different words here. I want you to notice or circle in your Bible, because we all know physical Bibles get you more extra credit points in the spiritual realm. I want you to notice or circle, saw, verse 2, inquired, verse 3, sent, which is used six times, by the way, on purpose, and died. What's significant about these words? is that they're the same formula that the brother of Jesus, James the Apostle, uses to describe the progression of sin in the New Testament. Listen to his words. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own over-desire. It's a word for idolatry. Then, they're enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is exactly the story here. What is sin? Sin is an offense against a holy God. It's not just breaking God's rules. It's essentially breaking God's heart. It's not simply a rebellious desire to be my own master. Sin is largely about looking to things beside God to satisfy and fulfill me. So this past week, my, one of my daughters asked me, dad, is it a sin to watch a scary movie? Now, this particular scary movie is on the Netflix children's section, just to mind you. But for her, it's scary. And she wanted to know, is it a sin to watch a scary movie? And so it gave us the opportunity to talk about sin and to talk about why, for example, lying is a sin. You ever thought about what makes a lie a sin? Beyond the fact that it's in the top 10, why is it there? And I said, the reason why we lie, maybe the reason why daddy has lied at times in my life Is because I'm looking to something other than God's Word God's story I believe something else can save me in the moment and that is covering my own skin it's the ability to cover up what I think I'm afraid of in the moment I'm more afraid of what this person thinks of me or the loss of opportunity or getting caught whatever than I am of fearing and honoring and being in awe of God, the living God and his word of how I'm meant to flourish. So I want you to notice back to that scripture reference in James. He says, A person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. Unfortunately, it's attaching the word evil. It should just be translated as over-desire, epithumia. It simply means... A desire that's even stronger to live by. I'm basing my life and my identity and my worth on something other than God. Someone other than Jesus. The formula for temptation is often the same. It's the same here as it was in the garden. Think about what happens in the garden. When the serpent comes to put the first man or woman under the curse, he comes to him and says, God's word is holding you back. You don't need to listen to God's word to you, if you just focus on filling your desire, you clearly see it looks good, it can make you like God, then you should do it. They see it, they're dragged away by it, they inquire about it, they partake of it, and it gives birth to death. The faces of temptation are different, but the formula is essentially the same. So here, for David, it's a naked woman bathing on a rooftop, but it's deeper than that. At its core is it this thing that says, man, I will finally be satisfied. There's a conquest here that will make me feel like a real man, but elsewhere, David also discards God's word out of simply a desire to magnify his own power and take a census of the amount of people that are in his army. Imagine the ways that you have failed to surrender to love this week. The ways that you have not loved others this week. The love of God for you, your love for God, neighbor, yourself. The formula is always the same, but it's ultimately idolatry. In her recent memoir, Easter Everywhere, Darcy Stunkey recounts the time that she was, um, she was a, the daughter of a Lutheran minister, and she left her Christian profession when she became an adult. She moved to New York City, she entered a life of club hopping, sexual obsession, she wrote several novels, she became successful, but she continued, however, to be extremely restless and unfulfilled. And in the middle of the book, she quotes Simone Weil as summarizing the main issue in her life and says, one has only the choice between God and idolatry. If one denies God, one is worshiping some things of this world in the belief that one sees them only as such. But in fact, though, unknown to oneself, imagining the attributes of divinity in them. What is she saying? She's saying, we're left with the choice of either worshiping God or worshiping things or people. And when I'm worshiping things or people, ultimately I'm looking at something I'm saying, this has an element of divine in it and this could ultimately save me. This is where David finds himself. Whatever your struggle is to find an identity apart from Jesus, insert it here. That's the formula. Seeing it, inquiring of it, indulging it, sending for it, conceiving sin, and it births death. I can remember a time sitting with a friend, telling him my own consideration of something that I knew was outside of God's word for me. I knew was outside of God's best for me, but I didn't want to hear it. I wanted to act in this particular manner. And My friend actually looked at me. We got together again, I had confessed this to him, what I had wanted to do, and he said, you know, when you shared that with me, I went home and I, th- I thought about that for the rest of the day, even in the night. I couldn't really sleep. And you know, here's what I see as you follow this pattern, as you walk down this road, Al, here's what you're gonna find. And he looked at me and he said, there's nothing there for you but death. I needed that Nathan in my life. And God's kindness, he sends David Nathan. Remember, the word send or send, the verb is used six times in the story to show that David is essentially playing God. He's sending people everywhere. Sending this, send that, do this, go here. He realizes that what he found as a result was death. But then in chapter 12, around verse one it said, but God sent Nathan. God sends his Holy Spirit into our life to allow us to look into the mirror, to see what we're really facing. What's breaking down the flourishing of our own life and the relationships around us? To recognize finally, oh my gosh, I've given in to the formula for sin. And only then, when Nathan comes and speaks the truth and love to him, does Nathan, does David, excuse me, experience the fourth reason why we need the doctrine of sin, the final reason, so that we can know the fullness of love. See, according to the law, David the king deserves to die. But after he repents of his sin, God declares in verse 8, it says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. our actions have consequences. Sin, full grown, brings forth death. Now, one wonders, why does the son have to suffer death? For this man's sin. I don't know why. But here's what I do know. Sin entered the world through our first parents and because of that, you and I will also die. We will also suffer the consequences of aging bodies of mourning family members. But, like David, we are also complicit. Like David, we've fallen for the formula of the curse. The consequences of sin are significant. But God's forgiveness is so extravagant. The consequences of sin are significant, but the grace of God is extravagant. We are the ones deserving of death, but another son has died in my place, the Son of God, so that through his sinless life, you and I, through faith in him, can be declared righteous. That's the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God. He broke the curse for all of creation by hanging on a cursed cross. In the Hebrew culture, anyone hanging from a cross or a tree was considered cursed by God. That's why the New Testament says, Cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. The consequences of sin are significant, but God's grace is extravagant. And when Jesus came across a woman caught in the act of adultery and about to be stoned by the religious leaders who can't see their own sin, apparently, Jesus didn't condemn her, nor did he take advantage of her. He forgave her, and he freed her to go and sin no more. In the eyes of Jesus, she saw the fullness of the love that she had always been searching for. It actually took her fall so that she could see the fullness of love. And now Jesus is sending you and me this invitation that no matter where you've been or what you've done, like David, you can be set free through faith in him if you acknowledge the Nathan, the Spirit of God, The sent one who is coming to you gently and saying, I have so much more for you. Through faith in Jesus, you're declared righteous. The curse is lifted. And one day, the effects and the power of the curse will be lifted forever. Through the resurrection of Jesus, C.S. Lewis says, death is working backwards. So... This gives us a hope for facing temptation like nothing else, like willpower never can do. Why, how? Back to the story of Harry Potter. How was Harry able to resist the curse? Well, you see, at a very young age, Harry became the host in his own body for another's soul. Part Voldemort, Harry had a part of another wizard's soul within him, which gave him some of the unique abilities of that wizard. Harry had a different kind of power, a different kind of intuition within him, which gave him the ability to say no, to resist the curse, because he was a habitation of another. And because of that, at a very young age, Harry had to learn to impose his will over anything that tried to dominate him or divide him from those whom he loved. And that's how also in our age, that's the difference between David and a disciple of Jesus. From David's seed will ultimately bring Jesus the Messiah. But David, you see, lived in an age of impartation. The Holy Spirit would come upon the people and then would leave, would come upon and leave. You don't live in an age of impartation. You and I live in an age of habitation. That means you now, through faith in Jesus, you also have become the habitat for another soul. You've become the home of the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you begin to say yes to new patterns and habits that say no to sin and death. To be a follower of Jesus through faith in his finished work means you are filled with the power of his indwelling spirit, the spirit of love and power and conviction, so that you live with a kingdom mindset and you enter into his movement. That's his power that's pulsating through you. And it's through his power living through you that you begin to build for another kingdom. You see, David's kingdom was a kingdom built on bloodshed, but so is Jesus. Jesus' kingdom also is a kingdom built on bloodshed. But it's not those of his followers. It's his own blood shed for you. So now you can enter into a new equation. It's up on the screen. When you see temptation, you have one of two options. You can either flee, which regards naming it and inviting others into the struggle or falling, which is the equation of inquiring, sending, which equals the birth of sin that leads to death. I have a friend who called me recently. He was headed to a spiritual retreat. He got his own Airbnb. Actually, I think his wife scheduled the Airbnb for him. And when he showed up, it was an attractive young woman from, according to him, it was an attractive young French woman which just is another adjective for him that's necessary. I don't know why. And he gets there, and she tells him, hey, um, the pool house is for you. Just so you know, I enjoy skinny dipping in the evening. You're welcome to join me if you'd like to. He's there to, on a, for a spiritual retreat. He texts me and said, this is what I just walked into. I'm going to work on the stuff I need to work on right now and I'm gonna leave tonight, and I want you to ask me tomorrow how it went. I want you to keep me accountable. He saw it, but then he chose to flee by naming it and inviting others into the struggle. So here's the thing, here's the question. Since you are now the habitation for the Holy Spirit, what habits is he calling you to flee from? so that you can live a life that is ultimately the fullness of love, (laughs) like Harry, to resist the curse when it's telling you, get up on the desk, get up on the desk. And you're like, okay, I guess I'm gonna do this thing because obviously my body wants to go that way. I wanna, obviously I want to enter into this time of, you know, gossip, or slander, or envy, or negative mindset, or whatever it might be. You have the opportunity to name it, to not give in to fear, call others into it, and flee. Why? Because you have the spirit of power living inside of you. And this spirit of power is inviting you to walk with him, talk with him, enter into the fullness of his life. So let's close in prayer. And I'm going to leave this question on the screen for your reflection. If... You are a habitation of the Holy Spirit. That's assuming that you have said yes to Jesus through faith. Or since you are a habitation for the Holy Spirit, what habits is he calling you to flee from today? Surrender that now to him in prayer. Thank you.